Hello and welcome back. This is Exhibit AI, a podcast exploring contemporary legal issues for tomorrow's technology, presented by the Center for Legal and Court Technology at William & Mary Law School. I'm your host, Brennan McGovern. On this episode, we have two great guests, Ott Lindstrom, the CLCT's Chief Technology Officer and resident VR expert. Howdy, hey. And Alex Ashrafi, technology enthusiast and CLCT's evidence expert. Hey, good to be here. Thank you guys both for being here. We have a really uh, interesting um, and hopefully informative topic today. We're talking about virtual reality or VR technology and how we can apply it and how uh, the justice system can apply it in the courtroom context. Now, a lot of people have heard of virtual reality, but maybe they haven't actually used it or experienced it in their own life. So, Odd, I want to start with you. What's the history of VR and why are we talking about this now? Yeah, well, thank you for asking me. Um, so I just want to say up front that we're going to be talking about a lot of specific companies, specific devices, etc. And uh, I want to ensure that uh, Exhibit AI is not endorsed. We do not endorse any of these specific products. We are not sponsored by any of these specific products. But talking very specifically about these products is kind of part and parcel with talking about the tech and all that stuff. So uh, just bear that in mind as I start naming a lot of brands. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the, the history of VR, like, uh, while it's having a moment right now in a lot of ways, it the sort of, the history dates back to at least the 60s. Uh, there's some argument as to whether or not stuff happened earlier as well. But like the, the first sort of headset VR that we, as we think of in the context of sort of the Oculuses and the HTC Vives and stuff of the current era, um, it was made like 1968, something called the Sword of Damocles, which uh, apparently... Sounds impressive. <laughs> yeah, well, it, uh, apparently it looked horrifying, which is why it got its name. But like that was like the like arguably the first example of you put it on your head, you could see this kind of wireframe environment that would track with you moving your head. Um, and then in sort of like the 80s, you had like a lot of like government agencies such as NASA and like research centers using kind of these kind of primitive headsets and stuff to do training and research and all that sort of stuff. Um, the sort of entertainment got in on it in the 90s with um, the, which if I may editorialize a bit, uh, with very expensive, unwieldy, and uh, pretty low-quality products across the board in a lot of ways. Um, Nintendo tried their Virtual Boy, which uh, we don't need to get into that. <laughs> uh, there's a company called Virtuality made these kind of big arcade machines where you could like fight a pterodactyl and something called Dactyl Nightmare, and everything was very swimmy and very strange, but it's still kind of in a line with what we're talking about today. And then we get to sort of about 2010, where um, the first prototype of the Oculus Rift was made, which is kind of the... When people hear Oculus Rift, they think VR. That's kind of synonymous with it in the modern era in a lot of ways. And uh, the Oculus is re- was really sort of the first affordable in-home VR application. Um, you just sort of... You needed the headset and you needed a capable computer to run it. Um, and a lot of other companies saw this new tech, jumped on it, and so in 2016 is really when you saw a lot of things hitting the mainstream markets. That's when the Oculus Rift launched in the market. That's when HTC Vive launched. PlayStation VR came not shortly afterwards. Nowadays, we have like a bunch of other things like the Valve Index, uh, Windows Mixed Reality headsets, etc. And all of these uh, are like... When I first started doing research on this, these were very expensive still um like affordable compared to the thousands and thousands of dollars from the 90s and 80s but still very expensive um you needed like a really powerful computer in addition to these really expensive headsets and so you're running into like maybe like two thousand bucks even like even like the minimum 
level stuff like the PlayStation VR and all that, you still needed like a game console in addition to this like two hundred, three hundred dollar investment. Mm-hmm. But now that in like within the last year and change, I mean like last two years or so, we see these sort of dedicated uh, VR much more portable headsets like the the Oculus Go, the Samsung Samsung Gear VR, uh, the Oculus Quest most recently, which are in a much a much lower price range anywhere from in like the 200 to 500 bucks that you just put it on and go. So that's why we're in a it we're able to talk about this in kind of a a more mainstream affordable context than previously. Sure. So the modern era of of the technology, you know, or what we would consider modern, you know, started maybe about 10 years ago and then yeah. really putting it at, at an affordable level within the last 2 to 3 years, yeah. let's say. And that's why now we sort of see like these industries beyond the entertainment industry like trying to get their hands on this in a in a uh, application fashion as opposed to just viewing it as an object of interest so i think most of our listeners can probably visualize vr uh, technology as you know like you said like the the oculus rift headset or a similar type of uh equipment could you just you know quickly explain just so we're all on the same page how does this technology actually work yeah sure so um so the there are a number of ways that vr can sort of manifest and the the way that we most commonly think of it uh these days is sort of the head mounted display paradigm um, which is that the Oculus thing, you're wearing like a kind of weird headset that's strapped to your face, like basically goggles inside a big plastic shell. You look kind of silly doing it. You've <laughs> probably seen those pictures on the internet of people just like their mouths gaped open, staring around with these big things on their face. But inside sure. those headsets, there are basically kind of, there's a screen or two screens that um, you have two you have like a sort of viewing angle on it for each eye and each angle is slightly shifted. So you have that stereoscopic 3d effect like you have in 3d movies. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's it's a similar technology there. And then coupled with that, you have some form of motion tracking. Um, It can either manifest in the form of inside out tracking, which is increasingly what it is where just the headset itself is able to, sort of track all of your motion, or you have external trackers um, with, with, for example, the first round of the first, um, the first HTC Vive, you had, you got these little things called lighthouses that you would put around the space that you're using um, that would track your movement in it. And then you have some form of hand tracking, be it like controllers you hold, things you put on your fingers, etc. So you can manipulate the virtual environment that you're seeing. So now that we're up to speed on what the technology is and how this powerful technology actually works, we'll get to the you know the main sort of thrust of our episode, which is how does virtual reality or VR fit into the legal world, and what ways we can see it you know starting to enhance or hopefully enhance or perhaps be a detriment to the practice of law. So I think the first question is, and this is for both of you guys, you know, what is the scope of uh, VR application in the legal field, and what where in the process if if I can be that broad, you know. Can can we see this be introduced? Yeah. So, um, I'll I'll talk for a bit, and then I'll let Alex jump in with his area of expertise. Uh, but we're there are a lot of angles for this, but we're really going to talk specifically about um, courtroom procedures and sort of and also some pre-trial applications, and more specifically, um, the place where you see this get talked about a lot is in the context of uh, criminal trials. Um, And the reason for that is it's a tech thing as well, where a lot of sort of ancillary tech to VR, like 3D scanners, uh, specifically 3D scanners and other things like that, um, are used 
more widely in a criminal context than in a civil context. So there are 3D evidence scanners, which a an investigator can sort of put in the middle of a crime scene, and then it's like this little thing on a tripod that rotates around and takes a 3D scan of the area, mm-hmm. and then that can be converted into a digital file that can be explored in a virtual reality headset or otherwise with a computer, and that's much more... Um, cost-effective than preserving a scene for an extended period of time and just an easier way for uh, law enforcement and investigators and such to, um, you know, fact-find and all sure, that. Sure, yeah. Um, so that's why sort of there's a... And, and that since, since that dovetails well with VR, that's why we kind of talk about it in the context of evidence in the... Um, in the criminal process, but there there are other applications, such as in uh, in in civil like settlement claims and all that sort of stuff that we we'll get into eventually. But that's really the main thrust. Yeah, and whether you use it in a criminal or civil case, I mean, there's a number of different ways you can use VR in the courtroom. Um, first of all, one way is to just use it simply as a way of presenting evidence. So similar to say you have a PowerPoint presentation or just a board that displays a number of pictures you already get evidence admitted photographs let's say you want to recreate um, the crime scene the way the investigators found it and they found you know forensic evidence they found uh, you know they, they have a number of objects photographs videos and maybe you just want to take all these and then put them in a three-dimensional uh, VR universe so the jury can see it all you know where they found it everything that might be helpful that way uh, jury views uh, are another possible application. Uh, that's when you take the jury out to the actual site to inspect it. Um, jury views aren't all that common, though. I actually know a few examples, one in New Jersey, particularly where I'm from, um, where jury views are required for certain property disputes. Mm-hmm. So you could imagine a situation where instead of carting the entire jury out to a property 50 miles away to, to look at the boundaries or something like that the you sure. recreated through virtual reality and you don't have to leave the courtroom for that um and then other things too i think we talked about um uh, maybe in as a way to show what a witness saw or rather to, to try to show that a witness could see uh you say say someone's disputing that an eyewitness is, was too far from the scene and that's kind of hard to picture to describe, you know, what the witness. I was could fifty see. yards away across the street. Yeah, yeah. You know, blah, blah, blah. So if you can find a way to, of, of course, you have to make sure it, uh, it's compatible with all the other evidence, and that witness, you know, confirms this. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you do that, as long maybe as a way to show the jury, well, this is this is where the witness was. This is what he or she would have been able to see at the time. No, now you you know you make the decision of whether. Um, you know, they, they could adequately see it. And, and on, I think you might know this yeah, better, yeah. but the, the Chinese case. Yeah. yeah. So like, uh, this is, um, this is not just like a theoretical thing we're talking about. Uh, I believe a, within the last year or so, a, a court in China used a, a virtual recreation of a crime scene f- so that a, a witness put on the headset and was able to sort of stand and demonstrate his line of sight on the crime that occurred and the jury was able to see like what he saw and were able to be like oh yeah the your 50 yard example like oh you were standing 50 yards away and you mm-hmm. could see that mm-hmm. you did have an unobstructed view or you know yeah, what exactly. have you could exactly. identify the suspect or whatever uh, so the specifics of that case might be yeah so that's that's happening now i don't i don't know if it's i don't know um of any examples in american courts uh i know that a uh, clct i believe did some experiments with uh vr um evidence mm-hmm. uh 
years ago now. Um, but so it's, it's definitely in the minds, if not in the practice. Sure, sure. So VR has been referred to as a empathy machine in certain areas in that um, it, it can manipulate how a jury or how anybody, you know, views a certain circumstance or certain evidence. Would you care to explain that a little bit? Yeah. So what's really unique about virtual reality compared to a lot of other mediums is the ability to gain kind of an immersive presence in a body that is not your own. Um, and what's, what's really incredible about the tech is that even though you logically know that like, well, this is clearly fake, it, the, the somatic effect of it, like the, the actual physical effect of it, um, like on a subconscious level or whatever, I, I am not a, an expert on the psychological aspects <laughs> of this, but it's a neat trick on sort of like subconscious processes. So you can, you feel things that even though you know this isn't actually happening, it feels like it's happening. Like if I, I've done some VR stuff where like, huh, well, I'm standing on the edge of this building and I know I'm standing in my living room, but this is terrifying. <laughs> it's similar to like when you watch a 3D movie with the goggles on and you know you know nothing's coming out of the screen yeah. to grab you, but when you see the monster's arm come out, you're still going to like flinch instinctively. Yeah. Imagine, imagine that, but your entire body has been replaced <laughs> by another body and all this. But, but anyway, so getting back to the empathy machine point, um, that effect can really help you, you know, empathize with other people, with other points of view and stuff in a way that traditional forms of evidence or narrative, etc., might not be able to. So while this might be a problem in the court context, which I think Alex will get to in a bit, um, in sort of less rigorous scenarios, like let's say settlement agreement or uh, settlement discussions, you might have someone be like, okay, well, this was a really horrible car crash that happened. Uh, and so as part of our settlement negotiations, I've recreated what it was like to be in the car crash with my, my with a, this, I got this guy to make a simulation now put on this headset. And now you'll feel how I felt when you rammed into me with your truck. And so while that might be concerning from like a manipulation <laughs> standpoint, it's, it's a very powerful thing. And then th this also extends into maybe not less clearly legal processes, but like surrounding issues. Uh, there've been some research into how um, prosecutorial misconduct can be uh, mitigated with the use of VR that sort of increases empathy with people going through the system um, and, and similar things like that, where like, being able to like literally be in the shoes of someone who is going through the processes that you administer every day can make you see things from their side. What a what a concept! I guess. Sure. A... Well, and so let's. I think that's a good segue into um, some of the legal issues concerning VR in the courtroom, or I, let's say the. I mean, we've talked about the practical uses and some of the benefits, but there are certainly some drawbacks and some some concerns. So. Alex, where, what evidence issues or legitimacy of evidence issues do you see VR creating? All right. So, I mean, as I described it as an empathy machine, uh, that's that's totally true. And he also alluded that there are major problems with getting that into a court. And uh, I just like to point out that the, the whole idea of, of VR is exactly as I described, that it's immersive and makes you think that, I mean, just take the name, it makes you think that a virtual fake world is actually reality. Um, but that directly contradicts the the purposes and the rationale behind our evidence rules. Uh, you, you don't want to convince the jury 
that something fake is real. That that's exactly what you don't want to do. You don't want the jury to empathize with one party or the other. That you want them to just look at the straight facts and come up with a conclusion after that. Um, so, I mean, the the biggest evidence hurdle I, I think VR would face, and this is what any defense attorney, really any party uh, that's not introducing the VR evidence, would be a Rule Four or Three objection, which would be that. Uh, there would be unfair prejudice to their party if you were to admit this uh, versus the the probative value that this uh, VR evidence would would bring. Um, the the unfair and I think a lot of judges would would buy that, um, particularly if if say if say a prosecutor was trying to introduce evidence of of a reenactment, especially a reenactment where they uh, actually portray the defendant. I mean that would be incredibly prejudicial toward the defendant. Um, and also uh, on the probative value end, so is this really doing much for the prosecution? I don't think it really is because a judge would say, why can't you show you've got photographs, maybe you have a surveillance video, you have all other types of evidence, just use that to show, to prove your point. You know, the jury doesn't need this really flashy, fancy 3D modeling of the scene. Um, and then, but, you know, you might maybe as I said earlier, you might have an example of, well, you're not actually, you don't actually have a reenactment of the, the, the event, but say you just are trying to recreate the scene when the investigators found it. And as I said before, you're just taking a bunch of pieces of evidence and displaying them in a way to the jury. That makes sense. I mean, it might not really unfairly prejudice the defendant or the other party all that much, but it just might not add that much value. I mean, does the jury really need to be there in, in the middle of the scene to, to, get the gist of it? I, I don't think so. So I know there are firms that offer these sorts of services where they can create VR recreations, if you will, or you know VR demonstrations for the jury. But anytime, as, a, as an attorney or a judge, you're, you're turning the evidence over to the jury, you're losing some element of control in what they see and what they experience from it. So even the, the attorneys that would be the introducing party what would their hesitations might be about using this sort of evidence, if that makes sense? Yeah, well, I mean, again, if you're putting the jury into this three-dimensional scene where there's all different objects, all, all kinds of things around, I mean, that, uh, presumably that's the reason you would do this. You're not going to have, well, maybe you would just have one single thing, but then VR doesn't really seem like a very <laughs> good application of that sure. or, or a way to do that. Um, so you would be concerned about the jury a juror being distracted by all these other dis possible distractions going on that they could look at. Um, of course, and I brought this up when we talked about it, is that, I mean, that's really true with any piece of evidence, any presentation of evidence. You know, you could be giving a PowerPoint presentation and some jurors focused on the background. But I guess the point is uh, that with VR, there's just a lot more things to catch them off guard like part of the reason for VR to exist is of yeah. course to immerse you in a yeah. space and if you are so immersed in a space this recreated yeah. crime scene for instance that you're more interested in the Metallica posters that are on the wall of this bedroom yeah. uh, than in like the well here's the blood spatter and here's the angle at which the blood yeah. spatter was like it's just it is magnifying that effect that already exists like 20 fold yeah. and, and there's also an issue from rule 401 just a pure relevancy uh uh, objection that if you're trying to recreate this whole space this whole scene you're going to have to put all these irrelevant details in it to make it look real and i mean it, i don't think it's as strong as a rule 403 unfair prejudice objection but 
you, you could see an attorney saying, it, like Ott said, why do we need the metallic posters up? And, you know, even there might be some ways where that might unfairly prejudice the, or it might be some kind of character evidence they're introducing that is irrelevant. Um, why, you know, what if a juror doesn't, you know, like that kind of music? You know, what, and now we're, <laughs> now we're introducing this thing that is totally irrelevant to the case, but might unfairly prejudice my client. You could see these kinds of objections coming up. And another area I know we discussed was that, you know, these, these outside firms that create these models or create these recreations. Now the defense attorney or what the non-introducing party has to cross-examine whoever created the demonstration. So another reason judges might be hesitant to accept this technology in their courtroom is now it, 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 it's introducing another element into their case where it's going to slow down trial. It's going to slow down, you know, the, the entire process. It's, it could take a day or more or a week to cross-examine, you know, Oh, the yeah. guy who whipped this up on a computer. Yeah, and it's especially true when you're dealing with, say, you're presenting some kind of expert evidence with VR as a tool to present it. I mean, you you could see making a expert a Rule 702 objections to this. You, you need to, you know, on top of the whatever the expert evidence is, you need to show that the VR is reliable, that it's based on reliable facts, that someone reliable made it, and that could just add a whole nother element to the trial yeah i wanted to add that um uh while we were doing research for this podcast uh, i'm not i'm not going to name any names but we found this company that is advertising like their like extremely powerful virtual reality presentations for courtrooms and it was like you have clearly never read the federal rules of evidence my people <laughs> you, what are you doing this is insane and it's just like so yeah that's the other problem of like the people making this vr stuff probably don't <laughs> have the background in like what is and isn't acceptable in the courtroom when mm -hmm. they're being hired to make this stuff and just it dives into all yeah. these problems alex was just talking about just that there's a there's a there's a knowledge gap we already have a kind of a knowledge gap between kind of a lot of attorneys and sort of tech stuff and this just exacerbates that yeah you, you don't want something that's just gonna beat the jury into submission with oh how how <laughs> crazy and how real this looks and and wow they must definitely be guilty that that's just that that would definitely be excluded from trial and and again i i can't imagine that that's probably a huge fear of judges for this and just alone i, I don't you know judges this is a new technology to them i can't see them really giving vr the benefit of the doubt overall especially if it's like the thing the advertisement ought described where it's going to be real flashy and really prejudice the jury and not just the judges who have to give the VR the benefit of the doubt, but the jurors themselves, oh, yeah. you know, certain jurors or certain juror profiles, I'm sure, um, would be less likely to consider VR evidence valid or as valid as, you know, a physical visit to the scene or the physical evidence in front of them. Yeah, I mean, I mean like that, that, that dovetails with just some general practicality concerns because, um, like, VR, even aside from all the the potential evidence issues and stuff has significant barriers to adoption, even on like a mainstream fashion for entertainment purposes, not just uh, like quorum stuff. I mean, like uh, for example, um, there's about a one study said there's about a 25 to 40 percent rate of motion sickness when people use VR, um, and while that might decrease over time, you're not going to have time to have people spend hours in these VR simulations uh, to acclimatize before they have to make a decision. 
and, and then like and the attorney doesn't <laughs> want to make 25 to 40 percent of their jury sick yeah exactly it's just like well i mean regardless of what this evidence is like they sure are not having a good time and they're having some bad associations with what i'm trying to prove here that's not great it's prejudicial in a whole other way yeah oof uh <laughs> not a great time um and then like just from a uh there are some people who like literally and this is something that would be very hard to voir dire out because a lot of people like might not know that they have these reactions to uh, the tech, but like some people literally cannot uh, see VR. Um, our fantastic producer, uh, Lindsay Whitlow over here, who's going to uh, talk a little bit about being stereo blind. Uh, yeah, I found out when I was a lot younger that when I went to see 3D movies, they unfortunately just looked like I didn't have the glasses on at all. Um, basically, I can't see in 3D when it's animated i can see 3d humans um but when it comes to theme park attractions or it comes to to old uh 3d technology it was almost impossible to differentiate the glasses on or off um now as the technology becomes more sophisticated it's not as difficult for me to see it but unfortunately it just depends on what a courtroom would be able to afford and implement um, whether or not people like me could actually partake in that type of evidence yeah thanks for that Lindsay. um yeah so just these these barriers that like again people might not know that they have this barrier until they're in the middle of trial and it just it becomes this whole other problem that people have to think about attorneys have to think about when like sorting out the jury doing all this other stuff one other practicality issue that i think we have to address is just the cost what realistically i mean i know you talked at the very beginning about how the cost of vr has become much more accessible over the last you know even just the last two or three years but Courts obviously have limited budgets, like any you know government institution. Uh, is this even a realistic thing they could implement cost-wise? Yeah, I mean, it it depends on the court. It depends on the resources they have. But um, like no matter what, the, like and then you have the question as well: How many of these are we going to get? Are we going to get one headset? Can we afford one headset? Do we have enough for a full jury? Um, then there are the costs associated with training court technologists, like um. And having someone around that knows how all this tech works, the, someone who can load all of the uh, all the programs, all the the recreations onto it, there just are a lot of just background logistics to it that is not as simple as plug and play. It's not as simple as throwing a DVD in and saying, "Here's the video of a the the crime scene" or whatever. It's this whole other uh, kettle of fish, as it were. <laughs> And Alex, do you have any other thoughts on just sort of the general practicality of introducing this into a courtroom, logistics-wise? Um, well, as I mentioned, I, I could see it being a little bit costly, and just it's just hard to imagine that courts are really that prepared for to to implement these kinds of things. And and as I said, and maybe I'll get to this in a little bit, but just um, I can't imagine that there's too much use for this so even if a court actually does implement this it probably won't be used all that much so you need to weigh your costs and benefits so you're really getting that much of a benefit out of installing vr and buying all these headsets for a courtroom to make a massive investment in a technology yeah. when you know every time it's brought up it could be you know the judge could dismiss it out of right right four or three concerns or what would the other list of concerns uh -huh. we've discussed so um speaking of like the, the costs and the practicality around on these high costs there's also the issue of kind of, um, from an ethical standpoint, the, the gap between parties. So you might have, a, like, the, the government, say, in a high-profile criminal case, can have all these massive budgets to make these, like, really, like, intricate VR things that 
are like even if they are very accurate very straightforward it is this it is a kind of inherently a whiz bang look how sophisticated this recreation is that like you know like a a lot of criminal defendants would not be able to afford to like find an expert to debunk stuff be able to afford their own recreations and all that stuff so there's on top of just the the cost of the court there's the there's the cost gap between uh, certain defendants, certain plaintiffs, and all that sort of stuff. So when we get to the bottom line here, it seems like while this technology has a lot of promise, it's a very powerful technology every day, every year. It, it's becoming more and more accessible to the general public at large. There are still a lot of hurdles, both logistical and legal, that this technology will have to overcome before we see any real common use of it in, in the courtroom. Yeah, I think that's sort of the end line there is like, this stuff is cool, but is it relevant uh and i as i've said earlier that i don't want to just be like completely doom and gloom there's no application to this whatsoever because i think in like some of those pre-trial contexts sure. for the purpose of like preserving evidence and easily able to fact find based on digital evidence able to use it as a tool in settlement negotiations even as like a an intentional jury, but even as like a, an accessibility thing like a juror could hypothetically appear virtually <laughs> you know they could you could have people who wouldn't otherwise be able to participate in the their civic duty be able to sort of virtually view a courtroom virtually view a like pieces of evidence and such in a way that might not be they might not be physically capable of um but outside of those kinds of sort of ancillary aspects to the process i just the way it is we currently have things set up the the concerns that we've talked about it just seems like an insurmountable barrier with, even if those barriers were overcome, not much of a benefit, really. Mm -hmm. uh, I generally agree with that, with everything you just said. Uh, I think generally just the costs would outweigh the benefits. Uh, it, I think you can find some cases where introducing VR evidence would actually do something for your case. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the jury views seem like a area that's ripe for... Uh, VR, uh, particularly the area where I said where, um, or rather the states that have certain laws that where they require jury views, and as I mentioned, for property disputes. So and that's a case where you're not going to really find much unfair prejudice. You you just want to take the jury out to view a boundary between two properties. Or a just, civil matter where you're not recreating right, a right. crime scene or recreating and, a, a accident scene, say. And in a case like that, where that costs time and money to, to cart the jury out there to that property, if you had a courtroom, say just one courtroom in the jurisdiction that ha was had VR implemented, you just say, all right, let's go there instead and get this done with. Assuming that uh, that complies with the law, maybe judges eventually or the legislature eventually would make that exception for vr saying yeah that it, it, we just want the jury to get a 3d picture of the property that's why we we want to bring them out there so i could see that um there are a few other cases i, I remember reading an article where one example is a a car accident case where uh the car skid over some kind of terrain uh some kind of icy terrain that made it skid in a certain way and it's something like that where it's it's a little difficult to explain just through video or photographs you know you might have a video where you actually try to recreate the scene um and if you do that you could theoretically have vr where you recreate the scene but it might just be a lot more beneficial to actually 
be there on the site or virtually be there on the site and view that in three dimensions as opposed to video. It might, I think you would really need to argue as an attorney that VR is applicable in whatever situation because it's really, really adding something that existing forms of evidence can't do. Um, but again, I just, yeah, it's, I mentioned a few examples, but I think just generally you're not going to find that too much. And, uh, you have to ask, is it really worth spending all the cost of VR to implement it in a courtroom just for a few cases that might stand out? Well, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up this discussion. I want to thank Alex and Ott, both of you, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Thanks. too. And a huge thank you to everybody listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Exhibit AI, to hear more about the intersection of law and emerging technologies. For more from CLCT, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and on our website. Everything's linked in the description of this episode. Last but not least, this podcast is made possible by grant funding provided by the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, funded by Cisco Systems, Inc. We appreciate their continued support for our independent research efforts. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, this is Exhibit AI signing off.